Welcome back to the Consumer Rights Talk. I'm your host, Adam Deutsch of Northeast Law Group in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. Thank you for listening to the show. We've been getting more and more positive feedback and really, really appreciate it. You know, we set out to start the show for one purpose. The idea that the rising tide lifts all boats. We wanted to get some consumer advocates with varying degrees of experience in private practice, in nonprofit law and government law and have them all tell their stories, how they got involved in the consumer rights you know, legal realm and some experiences, successes and failures along the way and lessons that they have learned. And we've learned a lot over the first several episodes. So thank you to everyone who's been listening and to help more people find the show, please leave a review and tell a friend or colleague to listen. If you'd like to be a guest, you can always reach out to me by emailing adam at northeastlawgroup.com. To make sure that you get the latest episode every two weeks, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter at Adam Deutsch ESQ for updates about the podcast, upcoming guests, consumer law, and anything else on my mind. So today on the show is Mike Landis. He's the litigation director of US Perg, the public interest research group, and he's based out of Denver, Colorado. What makes Mike particularly special is the diversity of his experience and depth of his resume at such a young age. Considering the fact that Mike is only in his mid-30s, the list is impressive and includes two years volunteering in Honduras with the Peace Corps, a dual JD and master's degree in international political economy and development, a state appellate court clerkship, a federal district court clerkship, two and a half years as litigation associate at a large New Jersey law firm, and then, of course, his current role as litigation director of PERG. At PERG, Mike's job involves taking a macro view of issues facing the general public, most often from a consumer perspective. While most consumer rights attorneys are focusing on individual client cases and relationships, Mike is looking for broad patterns where impact litigation can be achieved. PERG pursues its own cases, but also plays an active role in supporting a network of nonprofit organizations across the country that are pursuing consumer protection cases. And as he says in the interview, he's always looking to broaden partnerships with private attorneys as well. The story shows that anyone can move between the nonprofit and private law sectors, and that doing so can make you a more impactful and valuable asset to the consumer rights world. I think too often people tend to enter in one box. Either you start in nonprofit and you remain there, or maybe you make the switch to private, and seldom do people go from private into nonprofit. And that really makes Mike's experience quite unique. And I think that we all have a lot that we can learn from him. So without further ado, here's my interview with Mike Landis. Mike, thank you for joining me today. Uh, How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, it is a great pleasure to have you on. I, you know, I know that you're out in Denver, but you used to be an East Coaster at least for a temporary period of time. Are you originally from Colorado? No, I'm. I'm from the East Coast. I uh, grew up in New Jersey. Um, went to law school in New York, uh, but then actually was out in uh, out here in Colorado for undergrad at Colorado College. Um, and then uh, while I was in undergrad, met my now wife, who is from Colorado. So we were back on the East Coast for a little while, but then moved back out here uh, just a few years ago. So Colorado is my uh, uh, adopted home. Got it. All right. I was wondering your background. So I'm, I'm also a New Jersey guy, so I've moved a little bit further up oh. north on the coast, but that's my original home turf as well. Yeah, 
yeah, no, and I have, you know, lots of Jersey, Jersey pride. I know people have um, all sorts of strong feelings about the state, but, uh, <laughs> but I love it, and it's always going to be my home. So, um, and we get back, my family's not in that area anymore, but, um, you know, I still get back every so often and still enjoy it. And uh, I saw, you know, another thing that we, we do have in common, I know that after law school, and, you know, we'll, we'll go back through everything, but after law school, you spent some time in Newark working at Gibbons. So I was uh, mm-hmm. in Newark around the same time. I went to Seton Hall Law School just down the street there. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, yeah, I'm yeah. sure we've, yeah, been to the same places and, and, and all of that. And even if we were there at the same time, we're sort of in that same space around the same time. Yeah, that's pretty funny. So today, obviously, you yeah. So uh, you know, now you're in the nonprofit world, and this is something that's particularly interesting to me because you spent a lot of time working in private practice originally as well. And can you just tell us your title currently? Yeah. So yep. So right now, I'm litigation director uh, for uh, US Perk, uh, and I also then work with the other uh, groups in the public interest network. So they're sort of a uh, a network of, of public interest groups working on various issues. Um, I work primarily with, with U.S. Perg, um, you know, but I also help out and do litigation for uh, the other groups in our network as well. But yeah, litigation director for for U.S. Perg. So, what led you to want to go to law school in the first place? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, um, law school. So after I graduated from undergrad, um, I uh, did the Peace Corps, and that was something. The Peace Corps is something that I had always wanted to do. I had a high school teacher who had done the Peace Corps and he, you know, would tell these really great, interesting, amazing stories about his experience in Afghanistan uh, when he was a volunteer. And so that was always in my mind. So when I was graduating college, that was, you know, what I wanted to do. So I went to Honduras uh, for two years and, um, and, you know, wasn't thinking about law school, was just doing the Peace Corps thing. But then the work that I was doing on, um, my project was municipal development. So I was helping a really, really small uh, remote rural town, uh, their small local government sort of plan and execute uh, just a bunch of different projects in a bunch of different areas, public health, education, uh, some like small kind of infrastructure things. And it was sort of just through that work that I realized, I guess, the importance of law and sort of saw how... Um, how significant and important law was for for kind of the various development projects that we were working on, and there were sort of some, you know, kind of contracting, you know, issues or some public participation issues because I was doing a lot with sort of like civic engagement and civic involvement. Uh, and Honduras had recently passed a, a transparency law, and so I was working with a local group on, you know, transparency issues. And so it was sort of doing that work that I uh, thought it'd be interesting to go, you know, when I returned to the U.S. to um, go to law school. So I actually uh, applied, you know, studied, taking the LSATs in Tegucigalpa, um, which is a whole sort of other story and sort of experience, sort of getting, you know, doing the LSAT abroad, uh, sort of where I was in in a remote town in Honduras. Um, But did all that, you know, decided then that I was going to go to law school, did the application process, you know, from there, and then came back and, uh, and, and went to law school. And did you actually get a joint degree at that time? I did, yeah. So I, um, Fordham, where I went to law school, offers a um, joint uh, JD and a master's, and I did my master's in um, international political economy and development. And so I think that was sort of a little bit of a holdover from my kind of Peace Corps experience. Um, You know, it was definitely something that I was interested in. The nice thing about the, the program at that time, I don't think it's this way anymore, is that you could do it in three years. 
and so um, you know, so I was able to do it and not add any extra time. Um, and it was an area that I was interested in, and you know, they were pretty flexible when it came to transferring credits, so I could sort of take um, uh, law courses that were sort of international in nature, and they would transfer to the master's degree, and then I was able to take some econ classes. Um, for my master's degree that would then also transfer back for the for the law degree. And that was sort of an area of law that I was interested in. So it just sort of matched up really well. And like I said, it wouldn't add any additional time. And so it was sort of a nice, um, uh, you know, kind of way to, to, to sort of vary, I guess, the classes I was taking and, and sort of meet some other folks. And, and it was just, I think, a fun, uh, I, I think it was good to do. So yeah, so I do have the joint JDMA. I mean, that's remarkable that you were able to do that in only three years. That's absolutely fantastic. How could you pass up that opportunity, right? Yeah, that's kind of how I saw it, too. It was just kind of a cool thing. And, and I actually didn't know about it when I had started, but then there was a, um, when I was a 1L, there was a 3L who was doing the program, and he knew I had done Peace Course. It was like, hey, you should, you know, this was probably going to be interesting to you. You should check it out. So, yeah, during my 2L and 3L years, that's sort of when you um, start kind of folding in some of those other master's program classes. That's but really yeah, it was neat. It was a really great experience. You know, with the Peace Corps, I've always felt that it would be a remarkable thing for this country if we kind of had a a mandatory public service year, right? I mean, we, we obviously don't have a military draft that's compulsive right now, thankfully. Uh, but if, if there was something where everyone after high school had to do a year of service, be it you could choose to go military or you could choose to do Teach for America or Peace Corps or... Uh, I guess Teach for America, you wouldn't be able to do because you, you don't have a degree yet. But to do some kind of public service when you're in your early 20s, I think would be, or still a teenager, would just benefit everyone. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I'm obviously biased because I did it and loved it. Um, but, but I do agree that I think something like that would be really good. Um, you know, because I think it does give you so much perspective. Um uh, and I think just sort of helps form people and sort of instill, uh, you know, a, a sense of kind of, uh, of, of community and um, sort of the importance of doing service work. Um, and I, I think if you could instill that in folks, then, you know, I think they're probably more likely to continue to do it throughout their lives. And, and yeah, I think that would be a great, uh, a great sort of program. So, yeah, I'm behind that 100%. You suggested before, I think I heard you say that, the experience in Peace Corps really influenced your desire to go to law school, which is obviously why you you went for the LSAT down there. Um, how did it, you know, did you go into law school with a particular vision of what you would do with the degree? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think probably like, maybe like most people going into law school, sort of a general idea, but definitely no real specific plans. Um, and, you know, and I knew I wanted to go into some sort of public service, public interest work, right? So, like, that that was a given. Um, I knew that that's what I wanted to do with my law degree. Um, but sort of within the specific, you know, as far as, like, the specific area, what kind of, you know, work I wanted to be doing, that was much more open-ended. Um, and so, and, you know, one of the reasons why I chose Fordham uh, was because they have the Stein Scholars Program, which is one of their... Uh, public interest programs that you apply to, I think, right before you start your 1L year, uh, and then you're in that program throughout your your three years, um, you know, and and it's a great way to sort of network with the other public interest-minded students, Um, you know, you sort of get, uh, you know, sort of the the benefit of of having sort of faculty advisors, and you do all sorts of event programming, and, and, you know, support for summer internships to do public interest work, so you know, so I sort of did that right away and then kind of got on that public interest track. Um, 
you know, all through law school, which is sort of, I, you know, where I knew I wanted to be. Um, and then the other thing is when I, I, so I started law school in the fall of 2008 uh, in New York City, which was, of course, right around the time when, uh, you know, our markets were melting and the financial crisis was happening. So I think that then also influenced uh, a lot sort of the direction that I would ultimately take um, throughout law school and, you know, even then to this day. Interesting. And when you got out of law school, what was the first job that you took as a lawyer? Yeah, so I, um, uh, you know, was in law school, interested in public service work, um, got interested in doing consumer protection work. And so I actually did my 2L summer at the Federal Trade Commission in Washington uh, and the Bureau of Consumer Protection, and specifically with the Division of Financial Practices. And then I did some work as well with um, privacy and identity protection. So sort of knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, but then it was senior, or sorry, 3L year, and I was, um, uh, you know, figuring out my options and talking to professors and talking to other uh, law students and then other attorneys. You know, everyone said clerking was a good thing to do. So I ended up clerking uh, right after law school for a state appellate court judge uh, in New Jersey uh, for a year, um, and, and that was a great experience. And uh, really liked the judge who I worked for, and uh, and that sort of and I, you know, was thinking about going back and practicing in New Jersey. So sort of going into the New, Ju- New Jersey judiciary uh, uh, made sense. Got it. And from there, you ended up at Gibbons afterwards. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Right. So I went, so that was not on my radar when I was sort of looking, uh, you know, I wasn't planning on going into private practice. Um, like I said, I was more interested always in doing public service or, uh, uh, you know, government service or working at a nonprofit. But a, uh, a co-clerk uh, had a sister who was working at Gibbons. And so he said, you know, it was a good firm and, and you know, he thought that, that it would be, you know, interesting and, and uh, you know, work that I could get some good experience doing. So I ended up uh, getting in touch with them, and that was the sort of only firm that I'd applied to, and, uh, and you know, thought it would be a good good place to spend a couple years, uh, you know, get some litigation experience, um, you know, but it was never sort of my, my plan to sort of be there for, you know, my entire career, but, you know, it was a good... A good, uh, a good place to be, I think, to get some experience right after clerking. Yeah, you know, they're not particularly known outside of New Jersey, but they're they're one of the largest New Jersey centric law firms, um, and and uh, they actually have quite a big reputation for doing a lot of pro bono work as well, is my understanding. Mm-hmm. And so, yes. so wh- yeah, yeah. What, what areas did you work at within Gibbons? Yeah, so I was in. Um, the business commercial litigation group, so doing sort of general uh, civil litigation and, you know, it was kind of the, you know, breach of contract stuff between businesses and sort of that that, that type of thing. Um, but actually one of the more interesting uh, cases that I got to work on, so um, one of the partners at the firm had been named the trustee um, of a bankrupt company that was a, a running, that was operating as a Ponzi scheme, and so we were... Um, then doing the affirmative securities fraud litigation. And when I was in law school, I'd also done an internship um, 
with the SEC uh, in New York for one of the semesters in the um, Division of Enforcement, and I'd also done the Securities Arbitration Clinic when I was at Fordham. Um, so securities law and securities fraud was something that I was interested in. And so getting to work on the affirmative securities fraud cases that were you know, against the broker-dealers and against the auditing company, um, uh, you know, this defunct firm, um, was actually you know, something that I was interested in uh, in doing, so I, you know, I was able to put um, uh, put in some time on those cases, which I thought was really great. And I, you know, given this, as you know, it's not necessarily what they do all the time. So I felt that was a nice um, opportunity. But I was was able to work on those cases. Uh, and then, yeah, on the pro bono piece, I definitely did a lot of pro bono, probably more than they wanted me doing. I'm sure. Um, uh, but I was able to work on some really interesting asylum cases. Gibbons has a relationship with, um, I forget, I, I want to say it's Human Rights First, maybe, which is a nonprofit in the city. Um, and so we were able, the associates were able to work on um, uh, asylum cases. So I worked on two asylum cases while I was at uh, Gibbons and then did, you know, some other kind of smaller uh, pro bono projects while I was, while I was there. Um, I know, for example, two... When I was working at Gibbons, that's when Hurricane Sandy hit New Jersey mm -hmm. uh, in 2012, 2013. Yeah. Um, whenever that was. It was the so fall you know, we fall of 12, October of 2012. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and you may have been in New Jersey at that time. That's how I know, because I was still down there. It was my last year there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, my wife and I were living in Jersey City at the time, so that's... That's a whole other, you know, yeah. conversation about that experience. Um, but anyway, the aftermath of that, uh, you know, Gibbons was involved in the um, uh, the clinics and things that a very the, the nonprofits had set up to help folks sort of sort through some of the post Sandy issues. So, you know, I did a bunch of those those kind of pop up clinics in Jersey City, and um, so yeah, so there were there were definitely ample opportunities um, to do pro bono at Gibbons, and I, and I certainly. Uh, you know, took advantage of all of those opportunities. So, you know, it was nice. I was able to kind of balance out and sort of continue to do work that I did uh, find, you know, more filling and, and work that I sort of cared about at a deeper level um, than just sort of the day-to-day -day stuff that I was working on. I mean, that's pretty remarkable to have the opportunity uh, to really kind of feed your soul with that, but also have a foot in big law. I mean, having the opportunity to, to deal with that trustee matter you know, certainly mm -hmm. is, is in that public interest, the public good you're serving, but you wouldn't have that opportunity unless you were at, you know, a larger firm like that. Yeah, well, right. And, and, and it's probably kind of a larger conversation, too, about sort of the, you know, benefits of maybe going into that kind of practice experience as like a young lawyer. And, you know, I, I think, you know, it's obviously not the right, there's lots of downside to it, but I think there are some upsides. And I think getting experience and sort of working, getting the opportunity to work on maybe some sort of bigger cases or different types of cases. That's sort of, I think, one of the advantages. And I think then, you know, a lawyer can take those skills that they'll get in that experience and then, you know, move to wherever else they would sort of eventually want to end up. But then they have those skills. So I think that's, yeah, a, a positive. Is there anything in particular from that time period that really stood out to you as being impactful as, as a lawyer, a lesson that you learned or an experience that you had in representation? That's a good question. I mean, I, I was, you know, a lowly associate there, so it's not like I had a lot of, you know, sort of client experience necessarily. I mean, there were sort of smaller matters where, you know, if it was just sort of a, a, me and a partner, I'd have, 
you know, sort of the opportunity to be on client calls. So maybe, you know, a little bit to kind of, you know, just understand how that kind of client relationship, um, you know, develops. Um, uh, you know, I think, and I think probably too, you know, just the, the, the sense that sort of people want, um, you know, problem solved, right? Like that's, that's really what your job is as a lawyer. Um, and, and, you know, we sort of go back to our offices and our desks and like do the research and think through sort of the tricky legal questions. But then, you know, you have a client who you're doing this work for, and at the end of the day, like they kind of don't care about that. They just sort of want their problem solved, whatever that problem may be. And so sort of keeping that in kind of the back of your mind, um, uh, as you're doing, you know, the legal work and doing the representation, I feel like is kind of a good thing that I learned then, and I think that obviously, like that, that applies throughout your entire career, right? That you, you, you are a lawyer, you have a client, you are helping them solve a problem. That is, like, ultimately, at the end of the day, what you're trying to do. Um, and you know, so I'd say, that kind of in a general sense, that that I think has been a good was a good lesson that I sort of learned there, and you know, obviously would have learned anywhere else, but but that in particular was sort of something that I, I guess, I sort of picked up or remember from that time. So, I mean, obviously your experience today in your position is very different than it was then in terms of who you're dealing with, who mm-hmm. your, your you know, constituents are, or clients, if you will. But how do you try and mm-hmm. communicate those expectations of the, the problem solving and the fact that sometimes these things take years? Uh, how do you convey that from a communication standpoint and set expectations? Yeah. That, that is, you know, always a challenge. Um, and again, sort of my client, you know, being, well, you know, most often it's, it's you know, the organization, the nonprofit where I am. So I'm working a lot with my, um, you know, internal, you know, with our staff, with our program staff and kind of helping them um, sort of understand the, the sort of cases and issues. I mean, I think, you know, there's always like the, the jargon issue, right? I feel like we tend to use the legal jargon quite often and that, um, you know, I still sort of fall into that and sort of, uh, I have to remember to kind of, uh, you know, tone that down. Um, and, and so people sort of actually understand if you're explaining kind of procedurally what's happening or sort of what the issues are in a particular case. So I think being aware of that, um, is good. And I think probably just comes with experience too, right? I think the more that you do it, um, just sort of the better you are at it and almost in some ways too sort of the further you get away from law school where you're sort of first kind of indoctrinated in a way with sort of those concepts and words and theories you know the the, the further you are away from that the more time you spend kind of in the real world you kind of maybe lose that a little bit and then you sort of start to to kind of look at the issues again sort of as like a normal person would and sort of you know non-lawyer would look at it so i've uh, never heard anyone explain it that way but that's actually very true right Uh, so much of law school is you're you're gaining so much information but in a way it's narrowing your your brain the the uh way that you think it it changes the way that you think and then you do have to acclimate Uh back to the world i think that's right in terms of growing with experience thinking about things a little more practically taking your head out of the book a little bit that's that's an interesting way to put it yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think I definitely am not, you know, great at it. There's still certain times where you'll sort of explain something or talk about something and you sort of get, you know, a blank stare or something. And, you know, you have to sort of go back through. But, yeah, I think just sort of being aware of it. And um, uh, and I think probably, too, really, you know, listening to, to questions, right, like, um, uh, you know, from, from the client, uh, you know, 
listening to what they're saying, but then also sort of figuring out kind of, okay, what are they actually trying to know or sort of what are they not understanding? Um, you know, so I think that's a big, you know, piece of it well, you know, as well, being able to listen to sort of what the, what is actually being asked of you or sort of what's not being understood. Right. So, I, you know, I saw that after Gibbons, it looks like you went back and clerked again. So when my wife and I decided to move back out west here to Colorado, um, uh, the, the chance to clerk uh, the federal district court here in Denver uh, came along, and, and I think that was a really good way for me to, in some ways, kind of tr- transition career because I knew I was sort of wanting then to use this opportunity to get back into public service and public interest work. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also just if you're, uh, you know, moving, if you're a lawyer moving to a new state, and kind of starting, you know, from scratch in, in, in a way, sort of not having gone to law school in that particular state or area, you know, I think clerking in that particular city or region is a really good way to kind of, um, you know, in some way kind of parachute in, um, you know, to start developing the networks. I think, uh, you know, all of the lawyers in that area will know your judge probably, your judge probably knows a bunch of the lawyers. And so I think it's just a good way to kind of transition. So I definitely use that federal district, district court clerkship to sort of transition into the Denver and Colorado legal market. What was the difference? Obviously, it's two different jurisdictions, but, you know, what was the difference between clerking in a federal court versus a state? And obviously it was appellate division versus, you know, but all those aside, you know, the state versus federal, what was the difference for you? Yeah, I thought it was really good, actually, the way that I was able to, um, well, it was just nice having sort of a state appellate experience and then also a federal trial court experience. So, you know, getting the differences between state and federal was good. Getting the differences between appellate and trial um, was good. I'd say also, you know, one sort of interesting or sort of difference I went to my state appellate court clerkship right after law school, so obviously, you know, knowing very little about actual practice, um, you know, whereas I had done the federal district court clerkship after having practiced for a couple of years, so I think it was really interesting to go into a clerkship with some practice experience. Um, I think I got a lot more out of the clerkship. Um, I also think it was very helpful for my judge, you know, having the fact that I had practiced a little bit, I think I was just sort of more helpful to her as a clerk um, because I was able to sort of, you know, I understood kind of what was happening in the courtroom sort of from the other side um, a little bit better. So I think, you know, so I think it kind of benefited both of us in a way. Um, You know, I think in some ways, well, the general clerking experience is the same, right? I mean, you're there in chambers, you're there to help your judge, um, Right, the dynamic is pretty much the same. You're in a very small environment. It's you, and in both clerkship experiences, I had co-clerks. So it's you, your judge, your co-clerks, and, you know, the administrative folks kind of working on those issues. Um, And I had very, really great clerkship experiences. I mean, I I feel like I was really lucky to have phenomenal judges who um, were just great people to work with, great teachers. I learned a ton from them about just practicing law, and they were... You know, also just great individuals who are really interested in us as clerks and, you know, got to know our families. And you, you definitely, I feel like I, you know, you become part of the sort of extended family of the judge in a way, right, with all the, yeah. the co-clerks. And, 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 you know, so both of those experiences were phenomenal and similar in that way. Um, but then when it came to the actual work, you know, obviously very different, um, you know, because 
the difference between obviously state and federal and then also between uh, appellate and trial court. Um, you know, so those, those, those were differences there. But then, you know, they were also very similar just in that, you know, it's a lot of researching and writing, um, right? I mean, and that's sort of just what we do as lawyers anyway. And granted, you're, you're writing about different, um, you know, facts and, and, and different law, but the sort of general kind of like nuts and bolts of what we do kind of day in, day out was pretty similar. So, you know, I, I'd say those similarities were there where you just want to be able to research things quickly, you know, get the right answer, um, and then be able to write clearly about that, whether you're, you know, writing a memo for your judge or, or writing, um, you know, helping draft opinions or orders. Um, and I will say, too, you know, that both of my clerkship experiences, um, the judges were, um, you know, encouraged clerks to help with drafting you know, orders and opinions and that sort of thing. So I feel like we, we were able to get some good writing experience um, uh, in those clerkships as well. I would imagine that the district court level clerkship was an invaluable experience, but it must have also had a, a little element of kind of being humbled, stepping out of practice and going back to such a, a learning standpoint. Was that a tough transition for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever sort of necessarily thought about that, like, specifically, and I don't think anyone has asked about it before. I mean, I, yeah, that is a good question. I, I mean, I think you, you certainly have, you know, a ton of respect for for the judges and sort of what happens, you know, kind of in chambers. Um, and, you know, I guess it was sort of humbling in a way to kind of, kind of be back there. Um, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like how how I sort of felt, kind of going from practice and kind of then going into clerking. And I think I was maybe still kind of young enough in my my sort of lawyering career, mm-hmm. you know, that it didn't feel so significant. I mean, I don't think I was so far out of my prior clerkship that it kind of felt totally foreign or um, you know or anything like that. So I don't think there was any sort of difficulty. I mean, I, I don't remember. Um, you know, in some ways it was sort of nice, um, kind of being, um, you know, having kind of the, the, you know, being in the position where I'm sort of helping, you know, kind of decide things versus being on the other end where you're, you know, the the person trying to get the person to make the decision. Um, uh, you know, I, I feel like I had a little more, yeah, I think that's an interesting sort of dynamic as well and sort of understanding, um, how important the clerks are in the judge's decision-making process and sort of experiencing that. So, I, you know, I definitely appreciated um, that, uh, uh, you know, sort of aspect of the change from from practicing to then clerking and being in chambers. That makes a lot of sense. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So after... I'm throw an answer there. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Totally cool here. But I've never thought, but that was a good question. I've never really thought about it in that way. Thanks. Um, so, you know, then it looks like you then make the move over to PERG. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I finished the clerkship in the fall of 2016 and then, yeah, started right away with U.S. PERG. And were you in the same position that you're in currently? Yep. So when I started here, yep, the, the position I'm in now um, was a new position. So um, uh, so I wasn't, you know, taking over for anyone. So, um so yeah, so that was the position I, I started in, and that's that's where I am now. 
And so, you know, I'm not terribly familiar with Perg. On the state level, I did a little bit of work with them at, at Rutgers when I was an undergrad in New Jersey, but that was mostly cleaning up garbage around the, the Raritan River and things like that, you know, the, those kinds of community outreach programs. But there's a very broad, you know, it's a broad organization in terms of what areas you focus on. What's the exact, you know, how do you define what your role is? How do you stay focused dealing with so many different campaign issues? Yes, so that is a very good question, and that is something that I, you know, learned would be, you know, sort of one of the things I have to think about from the moment I started. And, you know, to this day, continues to sort of be something I'm always thinking about. Um, and, and I think there are, the way I sort of think about it and describe it to people is that, you know, I think there are a lot of benefits in, in working at an organization that works on such a broad range of issues, um, because it sort of gives me a lot of, you know, targets in a way. When I'm thinking about litigation, it gives me a lot of options, and, you know, there's a lot um, for me to engage on litigation-wise. Um, you know, but then it's also obviously, I think, sometimes a drawback because it's so much um, that, that you have a lot of targets, and so I think sometimes... Um, uh, staying focused and sort of knowing where to kind of prioritize um, the very limited uh, resource, you know, time that we have um, can sometimes be a challenge. So, yeah, so that's definitely a uh, significant uh, dynamic that I'm sort of faced with continually. Uh, and right now I'm the only litigator on staff. So, you know, I feel like really any of your program areas, you could sort of have a dedicated litigation person or something, or even several, depending on the area, like our federal consumer work. Um, so to have sort of just one person managing sort of and looking at litigation for all of our program areas, you know, within the U.S. PERG, and then also helping out other groups in the network that maybe work more on environmental issues, um, I'll sort of step in a little bit and kind of help them there. Um, you know, so it's definitely a broad a broad kind of portfolio uh, of potential sort of issues and cases to be working on. So, yeah, it's definitely a challenge, and I think just sort of being aware of it and, um, you know, just trying to stay focused as best as possible is maybe the the way to try to go about it. So as the only, you know, litigation attorney on staff, how are you deciding what cases to bring and initiate? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And, and so part of, you know, my time here has been figuring that out, right? So when I started, um, you know, we had always been, you know, involved in litigation. Like we would sign on to amicus briefs and we had been a party in some cases and we would have outside counsel. Um, and, and uh, you know, the idea with creating my position was to, to, you know, have that centralized in a way and then also have it sort of be much more um, focused and sort of strategic in what we're gaining uh, and able to engage on. And then also, you know, have a little bit of capacity to do that in-house, right? But obviously, just one person, you know, I only have so many hours in the day, uh, and so there's only so much I can do. Um, so, and I, so I think the way that I've kind of approached it um, is working with a lot of the other uh, nonprofit folks um, who sort of work in this space as well, and, uh, and you know, having them as sort of informal um, folks who I can consult with about, you know, particular issues or, um, you know, questions and sort of setting up kind of a, a, a program. Um, so that's been really great. But then also, you know, having being able to partner them in a more formal way, like co-counseling cases. So I think that's kind of the, the um, structure.
sure that sort of made sense. You know, if obviously you're a nonprofit and you have just a single staff attorney, um, you know, there are other nonprofits that have staff attorneys who do litigation, and so you can partner with them and co-counsel a case that way, um, which we've done. We'll also, you know, if we can get outside counsel, you know, if there's a case that we have where um, uh, outside counsel maybe would want to do it on a pro bono basis, that would be great, or perhaps another sort of client would be able to help with attorney fees, that would be a good way to do it. Um, uh, and then also, yeah, I mean, I'm open to the possibility, too, of co-counseling with, with private counsel. So if there's uh, if there are other consumers, consumer attorneys out there who have, you know, a case or we have a case that I think would be interesting, you know, I'm happy to, to co-counsel a case um, that way as well. So that's, I think, sort of mm-hmm. structurally how we kind of, how I try to um, make it all work when it comes to sort of uh, piecing together the resources. So first, if there is anyone in private practice who would like to lend their support and their assistance in litigation, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say, um, you know, reach out and email me, uh, email or call. Um, you know, my contact info is, is um, should be up at our website. Uh, I mean, people can find me on, I guess, LinkedIn and social media as well. Um, but definitely, I, I'm, I'm interested in hearing from other folks and, and seeing what we can do. Um, one of the things we've kind of been doing as well is um, helping out with some amicus briefs. So, you know, if there are consumer attorneys out there who have a case and they think it would be helpful to have an amicus brief, um, you know, come from an, uh, a national advocacy group, um, I'm happy to... to see if there's an issue that we can write on and, and um, put together a brief to sort of help your case. That's sort of one of the, the, the ways that I think we can kind of help folks out and sort of where we can kind of fit in the kind of existing universe of the, of the folks who are doing what we do. So it strikes me that you're in a unique position where, you know, before it seems like, okay, it's hard as an organization like PERG to be kind of scattered. But on the other hand, you're at this, the way that you described that you work with other nonprofit, you know, uh, lawyering organizations and partner with them on litigation you're really in a place to help steer focus on on major impactful issues across the country and obviously that's part of the mission statement for perg what are particular issues that you have at the forefront of your mind right now that you're looking to tackle in the next one to five years yeah that's a good good question and um, you know, and I guess I'll sort of take a step back and say, too, sort of the litigation kind of thing that I work on, you know, I, I look to see where we already have kind of existing programs um, and where we have our advocates and our organizers and, and, you know, folks doing work on issues. And so I'll see if there are um, issues there. But if there's also just sort of an interesting kind of legal issue that we're not necessarily working on in sort of a policy way, like that would be a fine thing potentially as well. Um, and so when I started, I kind of started with our program teams and um, and uh, our national consumer team um, headed by uh, Ed Merzwinski uh, in Washington. I sort of got my initial sort of caseload or sort of issues to work on primarily from Ed. Um, and Ed was, uh, you know, has done and is continuing to do a lot of work with the CFPB. So, um, so I'd say kind of the first set of issues um, uh, had to do with the CFPB and continue to be, uh, you know, dealing with the CFPB. And, and um, obviously that's a, an agency that, um, you know, had done a lot and, and was doing a lot of great work for consumers. And obviously things have, have, have changed um, in the past couple of years. So, you know, we were always involved in the, um, all of the, the 
about the constitutionality of the structure of the bureau and and it defending its independence and you know from these challenges and and that is obviously uh, still ongoing. But we're involved in those cases, and so that's been one thing. And sort of you know in some ways all things CFPB. So a lot of the, the you know any of the issues that would fall under the, the CFPB's jurisdiction were sort of you know probably looking at from a program sort of policy point of view, and, and so I'll sort of see if there's litigation angles there as well. Um, another area that I've sort of been more involved in and, and, and I, you know, was involved in from the beginning of when I started to have to do with um, uh, competition and antitrust issues, and there's obviously a pretty big consumer angle there. Um, but again, this was primarily working with that initially. He had done a lot of work with um, uh, you know, payment card systems, and, and there's all sorts of competition issues there with um, uh uh, you know, MasterCard and Visa and how they're structured. So we did some amicus briefs in some of the cases there, some of the antitrust cases um, dealing with those payment systems. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, so, so, and that's something that I'm continuing to look at now too would be sort of antitrust and, and competition issues and obviously how it affects consumers. So that's sort of another area. Um, and I think that it also fits in with our, the various programs that we work, that we work in if you look at sort of these um, uh, sort of markets and you look at the actors, there's you know, we're looking at it because there are all sorts of problems that are affecting consumers. And, and if you sort of look at a lot of these places, you'll, you'll, you're, you're very likely, I think, in some cases to see competition issues um, as well. So that's sort of one thing that's kind of just generally on my radar. Um, uh, so, yeah, so I guess those are kind of, uh, you know, some of the issues. But, again, we work on a lot of different things so you know you know who knows what could be the kind of the next uh what could be sort of coming across my plate sort of one day to the next understood and are there any you know legislative things that are of concern to you that you see on the national horizon obviously the cfpb is under a lot of pressure right now and we just heard as you know i don't know that you guys touch student loans so much but you know, we've heard about the, the fight right now with the Department of Education saying not instructing uh, for uh, Department of Education not to disclose loan information to the CFPB as far as servicer violations mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, any other, you know, things in D.C. that kind of concern you that are on the, the lookout? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so sort of all things CFPB, right, obviously, which you sort of touched on, and that and that's a big issue. The one other area that I'll mention, too, I guess, would be um, privacy. Um, so that's an area where we do a good amount of work, you know, when it comes to consumer privacy issues. Um, and so, you know, we filed some briefs in um, some cases, uh, you know, where there are consumer privacy concerns. I think it's an area, you know, that is obviously getting a lot of attention right now, and there is... Um, you know, talks about legislation, and, and you know, it's not something that I I don't work specifically in the legislative piece, so I kind of just hear it from from folks, sort of what's happening there. And I know there's obviously this you know talk of some sort of federal privacy legislation and that sort of thing. And we've been involved at the various state levels with, uh, or at the state level with the various sort of state bills in Illinois and California on consumer privacy. And I think that is an an area that is going to continue to sort of grow in importance. Um, uh, and I think there's definitely a really huge consumer, um, uh, you know, kind of implication for all of that. So I'd say that's probably another area um, where we're sort of engaging, right, kind of the, the privacy and data protection 
Um, so like the Equifax breach, for example, is another big issue that we've worked on, um, uh, you know, from a, a policy sort of public education piece, right? Sort of like giving tips and advice for, for you know, what individuals, can, consumers can do after a big data breach like that. Um, and then also working obviously with policymakers on, you know, what are the legislative fixes that can happen to, to keep these data breaches from happening. Um, and then also obviously, you know, what I would be most interested in are sort of what are the legal remedies here and sort of what's the litigation and, and um, doing what we can to support the consumer attorneys who are bringing those, um, uh, you know, those cases against, uh, you know, companies for, for the data breaches and that sort of thing. So like Equifax one, for example, we've been pretty involved in. Um, I'd say that's probably the, the highest profile one that we've been, that we've been engaged with. Data privacy is, is definitely going to be huge. There's been several people who have talked about it on the podcast. The reality is that today we're all signing away our information without recognizing it or what the possible ramifications are. So uh, thank you. Thank you for taking a, a lead on that. With regard to that camp. Yeah, no, think, yeah go on. Well, I, was gonna say, I think it's you know definitely an important area. And again, sort of going back to what I was saying, I think there's definitely sort of the, the you know, you see in the, the competition and sort of antitrust space, yeah, sort of more competition policy, um, you know, kind of the, the data issues are, are there as well. Um, so, yeah, again, kind of the, the, I think there's some overlap on those issue areas. But, yeah, I think it's an important issue, and, and I think it's definitely going to grow in importance in the coming years. Yeah, I did want to ask, the mission statement for PERG has to do with standing up to special interests. How exactly mm-hmm. do you define what special interest means? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. And I, you know, I kind of think about that because in, in some ways that's sort of like our lodestar, right? And like any new issue we sort of see out there, we kind of, you know, think about it in those terms. Like, is this a public interest versus special interest issue? And, you know, kind of if so, then that's kind of, then we'll get involved, right? Um, and, and, you know, so I, I, the way I think about it, I guess, is that you just have people out there where there are certain issues, actors, and and sort of making decisions out there based on just kind of special interest, you know, private interest. And and, and who knows, maybe it is sort of private interest versus public interest versus special interest. Um, uh, But I think that's right. And so if you're thinking about sort of what the, like, policies are and certain policies get set, you know, in a very general sense, you just want to make sure that whatever policy is getting set, it is out there to benefit the public interest, and it's not getting set to benefit some private interest, right? Um, so I guess that's kind of how I think about it, and you know, and, and and even like if you think about sort of actors, like private actors, right, like companies out there dealing with consumers, you know, they have certain obligations. For, but you know it's going to be their sort of public the, or the private interests that they're that sort of guiding what they're doing, and so I think we're I think we kind of see ourselves as a check on that in a way, right? To make sure that sort of those private interests aren't aren't um, uh, you know overcoming and, and um, uh, you know acting as a, or to being a detriment to the public interests. Again, I was sort of a, a, a kind of a long <laughs> answer, but. No. Um, but, but I think that's sort of right. Like I think that's like you, and the private interests are very well organized, right? They're groups, 
you have like the various trade associations and that sort of thing, right? Like Chamber of Commerce, and and they're able to do a lot, you know, in in the halls of Congress and and in courts. And I think in a lot of ways we are just sort of the that organizing force on the other side, right? To to balance out those sort of combined private interests, right? There's no uh, you know, all these individual consumers who are out there, right? Like, the, the problem is you have these people and they're not organized, and, and so, like, they're very easily, you know, to get taken advantage of. And so you sort of need that kind of organizing um, force to be able to kind of balance out um, these very well-organized private interests on the other side of the equation. So I kind of think that that's our, that's our role to play um, in a lot of these issues and whether or not that sort of fight is happening over sort of policy questions in Congress or, you know, even sort of over legal questions in courts, you know, that's kind of how I, I think we sort of think about, or at least how I think about sort of what our role is. You know, that that's that brings me to an important question that's kind of towards the, the closing here, but what, for, for attorneys, particularly in private practice, who want to be of support to the organization, other than contacting you with you know, an offer to, to aid as co-counsel, what can we do? What can other NACA members or other people with a, attorneys with a, a consumer advocate angle do to help you and your organization? Yeah, that is a good um, question. And I work with, you know, I'm a member of NACA myself, and I work with Ira, and I know Ira was a, 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 a past guest as well, so I'm, I'm, you know, happy to be following Ira's footsteps um, in a way. Um, and, and yeah, so being involved in those organizations is great. I think the thing that I sort of see, well, I would encourage, you know, all of the, the, the consumer attorneys out there to get involved in the local consumer organizations. Um, um, and I think, you know, the consumer attorneys can play a really important role um, in a couple of different ways. I think one, they can like provide expertise. So like if you have an advocacy group let's say, working in a particular place on an issue, you know, maybe the staff people there, you know, maybe there's policy people and or maybe they, they um, are organizers, but they don't have sort of the technical legal knowledge. Um, I think the consumer attorneys can really provide a lot of good help in the way of like just resources and support there to kind of just help identify kind of issues and explain kind of technical legal stuff. So I think kind of being able to provide guidance there is really helpful. The other thing I think is um, helping out identify individuals for stories. I know that that's, you know, one thing that we're continually working on, um, you know, at the national level. But then also I do, you know, some work here in Colorado and in Denver because this is where I'm physically located. And, you know, I think whenever there's an issue, let's say there's like a, a bill before the legislature or something and there are going to be hearings, you know, legislators always want to hear individual stories and i think the consumer attorneys are great because you know you, you have your clients so you have these individual stories you know from your experiences and so i think being able to identify and get those individual stories and then you know pass them along to the advocacy groups is also a really good um uh you know really good and important um thing that the consumer attorneys can do uh, you know, because here where I sit, you know, I don't have like a, you know, intake. I don't, I don't, you know, have consumers necessarily calling me sort of daily on issues. And so I kind of rely on, on kind of the local consumer attorneys who are sort of getting that constant feedback from consumers when it comes to, okay, what are the problems that are happening? 
happening and, and sort of what are the issues that, so, you know, we kind of know what to work on, but then also, you know, if there is a particular bill or something is up and, you know, or even like a press story, right? There's a reporter and they want to do a story on a particular thing, but they, they want to hear from a consumer, right? I think if, if, if um, the local consumer attorneys can, can help identify those individual stories, that would be a really helpful thing. Uh, it's a great call to action. I mean, you are dealing in the macro, and out here we're dealing in the micro, and you need to hear that in order to know what the trends are and to really present the stories and figure out the biggest problems that, that are fires that need to be put out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right, having sort of that, that communication back and forth because sort of we can help with information, but we don't have access to certain things. I think the consumer attorneys, you know, sort of doing the, the day-to-day work, um, you know, have access to things and, and you know, but lack certain things. So, like, again, having that sort of uh, symbiotic relationship, I think, is really um, good. And I think it's sort of how we can kind of make a broader impact in, in all of the areas where we're working. Mike, thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners? Uh, no, I mean, I would just like to, to thank you, obviously, for, for having me on. And, and um, this is a, a great opportunity. I think it's a great service to the community. Um you know, as far as getting information out there and making connections. So I, I'm, I'm a listener of the podcast, and, and it's really great to be on. And, um, and you know, I just want to thank you and, and all of the other consumers out there, the consumer attorneys out there, um, for doing the work that you're doing, because really having, you know, kind of the strong, robust enforcement of all of these uh, consumer protection statutes um, that we have are really important. And so I think it's, it's good that there are um, – folks out there uh, helping individual consumers on a day-to-day basis, you know, when they're getting uh, taken advantage of and, and, uh, you know, by large companies that really don't have their interest at heart. So it's really important work, and I know sometimes it can be, um, you know, hard because, you know, you lose sometimes, and maybe sometimes you lose more than you win, but sort of sticking together and kind of having the community there to support you is um, really important. So I think this is a great... uh, tool and another way that people can connect and I just definitely encourage folks to you know reach out if you have questions or think that I can be helpful or you know an advocacy group like ours could be helpful in any way we're definitely always interested in in supporting the work that you guys are doing Mike Landis thank you so much for your time